Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with evidence emerging about the planning of the January 6th insurrection involving Trump, Bannon, Giuliani, Eastman, Meadows, Gavino and Patel, and the organisers of the rally, in coordination with a number of pro-Trump members of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bobbitt, Paul Gosar, Mo Brooks, Madison Cawthorn, Andy Biggs and Louis Gomert. Joining us to assess the evidence so far and hints of more to come and discuss whether treason or sedition applies to the activities of these participants is Carlton Larson, Professor of Constitutional Law and Legal History at the University of California, Davis. One of the nation's leading authorities on the law of treason, he is the author of On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law and The Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries and the American Revolution, and we will look into the dozens of planning meetings that took place between the rally organizers and members of Congress and the activities of Bannon's War Room in the Willard Hotel in communication on January the 5th with Trump in the White House, who, along with John Eastman, was pressuring the vice president to refuse to certify Biden's electoral victory. Then we will follow the money and look into the financial connections between the Trump 2020 campaign and the dark money donor network into which millions were parked to obscure the funding of the January 6th rally and the mobilization of the insurgents who stormed the Capitol. Joining us is Anna Masolia, who is a researcher, editor and writer at the Center for Responsive Politics, where she studies foreign influence, digital and political ads, and is responsible for Open Secrets Dark Money Data, as well as its Foreign Lobby Watch. We will discuss her article at Open Secrets, Details of the money behind January the 6th protests continue to emerge. Then finally, we will speak with Steve Howard, a professor and associate director for graduate studies at Ohio University, who is a sociologist by training, whose work focuses on social change in Africa and social movements in the Muslim world. He was a visiting professor at the Afad University for Women in Sudan and is the author of Sudan, Scenes from a Youthful Uprising, and we'll examine the record of the leader of the military coup who is hosting the former prime minister under house arrest at his residence and the influence of the regimes in the Gulf who prefer to have military kleptocrats rather than civilians running Sudan. And before we go to our first guest, while background briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Carlton Larson, who's Professor of Constitutional Law and Legal History at the University of California, Davis, one of the nation's leading authorities on the law of treason. He's the author of the books On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law, and The Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution. Welcome to Background Briefing, Carlton Larson. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. 
Well, thanks for joining us, Carlton. And there's been a lot of suggestions emerging from the House's committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. First of all, we had a little while back Liz Cheney suggesting that it was important to get testimony from Steve Bannon because Bannon, in effect, is covering up for Trump or he's linked with Trump. And in going after Bannon, they're really going after Trump. I mean, she didn't say it in those words, but that was the implication, at least the way I heard it. And we know that Bannon was pardoned by Trump for fleecing these Trumpster supporters over the scam he had of building the the wall down on the Mexican border. And he was pardoned, uh, I think, at the very last minute by Trump. So let's begin with that. Do you think that the hint from Liz Cheney indicates that that's the direction they're going, in other words, to the very top in terms of the possible organizers of this insurrection? Well, I do think the committee is going to track down every possible lead. Um, And if that goes all the way to Trump, they will definitely follow it. As far as I can tell, the committee is um, very aggressive. Everybody on the committee is absolutely outraged by what happened uh, and determined to figure out exactly what caused it. Um, Now, whether the Bannon lead will necessarily lead to, you know, good, clear evidence about Trump, that that remains to be seen. But certainly, um, Steve Bannon would be a a clear person of interest uh, for the committee. But it's not going to be easy to get his testimony, right? I mean, he's going to drag this out. And unless Merrick Garland acts forcefully, the steps that it goes through are to a grand jury and U.S. attorney in D.C. And I mean, it's, there are lots of obstacles that Bannon can throw in the path. And now, apparently, the House is thinking about passing a new law that would be able to fine him $100,000. But since Bannon... Um, is on the payroll of a fugitive Chinese billionaire. I don't imagine that fine is going to hurt him much. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things that, that that could happen. I mean, one is the House does, in theory, have inherent arrest authority. Um, they could actually send out officers of the House um, to physically you know, imprison Bannon in the Capitol um, until he testified. Um, there is historical precedent for that. It hasn't been done for a long time. Um, I don't know how likely they are to pursue that route. Um, and then, of course, the other option, as you note, is is criminal prosecution for disobeying uh, a subpoena. And we have had you know plenty of prosecutions uh, like that. If, ba- if Bannon ultimately refuses to testify, um, you, you know, think back to like Susan McDougall back in the in the 1990s. You know, she ended up going to prison um, for quite some time rather than than testify. Uh, with respect to some of the issues raised then. Um, so it's ultimately, you know, how much is, is Bannon willing to do? Is he willing to sit in prison for Donald Trump or, or not? I mean, Trump does not have a great history of loyalty um, to any of the people who worked for him. And if I was making that calculation, um, <laughs> I wouldn't put, put a lot of weight on uh, on Trump standing behind me. Right. But at this point, we don't know how determined the House is, right, to pull that trigger. And there apparently there is a Somewhere in the basement, there is a cell <laughs> in the Capitol. <laughs> Maybe gathering dust, but it's there. Yeah, it's there. Um, and you know, and and even even the thought that it's there um, uh, is, is is a potentially useful thing uh, as a tool that could be threatened, even if it's not actually used. And the other thread that's happening here, in terms of glimpses of where where the select committee is heading, in terms of its investigation 
is the revelations in the book by Woodward and Costa Peril, where they've got you know, literally dialogue between Trump and and Bannon, where Bannon and before the insurrection is saying, you know, we're going to um, kill Biden in the crib. And apparently there was a war room that Bannon had set up in the uh, Willard Hotel on the January the 5th, the very day that on his broadcast on Breitbart, he talked about how all hell is going to break loose tomorrow and people would be surprised what's, what's going to happen and strap in and all this military jargon that he likes to use. So that stuff is pretty explosive. The fact that Bannon was there in that Willard Hotel the day before with Rudy Giuliani, Bernard Carrick, somebody from the White House, I'm not sure who it was actually, as well, a high-ranking White House official, and Bannon himself is on the phone to Trump, and in the White House itself at that moment, you have John Eastman, the White House lawyer, not the counsel, but a lawyer there, who was basically giving Trump the blueprint for a coup and forcing the vice president to go along with not certifying the results of the Biden victory. So all of that in itself is pretty explosive, and then then we'll also get to the Rolling Stone revelations as well, but let's deal with that. How close to treason is that information if if indeed it pans out, which it seems to? Well, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a hard question. So the relevant provision of treason here in American law would be the provision that says um, it's treason to levy war against the United States. This is in Article 3 of the Constitution, and this is really directed to internal uprisings, rebellions. And so early in our history, for example, we had the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, where people used military force to try to stop uh, a federal tax, and the George Washington administration deemed that uh, to be treason and prosecuted those rebels as such. So in the, early, in the late 18th century, um, sort of using armed force uh, in an attempt to alter the course of the government, or certainly an armed attack on the capital, um, to interfere with governmental operations, um, that was clearly treason by levying war against the United States. And I think the, the people who breached the Capitol um, under that 18th century understanding uh, would have been guilty of treason. Now, there's later 19th century decisions that suggest you have to be trying to overthrow the government itself, not just resist a particular tax or one particular law. And so that raises a very tricky question of whether these persons at the Capitol we're really trying to overthrow the government, and I think you could make a decent argument that they were in the sense that they were trying to overturn the results of a presidential election, um, in effect institute um, a coup. Um, alternatively, you could say that they were simply trying to obstruct the operation of the Electoral Count Act um, and didn't have larger designs beyond that. So that's a tricky problem. But the key is for all of that, you have to be part of the use of force. And so that's easy for the people who actually breach the Capitol. The question then is, for the people who had knowledge or were involved in this ahead of time, did they know, did they understand that there was going to be a violent attack on the Capitol? And if they knew that and they were part of the planning, say they provided maps to the Capitol, they provided weapons, they provided intelligence, they helped coordinate. Um, The old line from treason was, in in treason there are no accessories, all are principles. And there's a great decision... um, from John Marshall uh, in the Aaron Burr case saying that, you know, anybody who played a role, no matter how remote, is potentially guilty of treason. And so then I think the really difficult question is, is what was Bannon, say, doing in that room? 
Um, was he actually plotting a physical attack on the Capitol, um, or was he simply plotting to have a big, giant protest? Um, you know, he loves his military analogies, and that it was the whole idea was to pressure Congress um, not to accept uh, the electoral uh, count. And if that was what he was doing, then that's not treason. That's not even really a crime. I mean, that's that's protected First Amendment expression. Uh, and so I think the really interesting question is, when, as, as the committee digs into this, looking at, say, Bannon, connections to the White House, looking at connections to a member of Congress, is what was it that they really understood was going to be happening? Did they understand this was a protest, or did they understand that this was going to be an armed attack? Because the legal consequences, if they understood it to be an armed attack, are very, very different um, and could potentially place people in a lot of jeopardy. And again, I'm speaking with Carlton Larson, who's a professor of constitutional law and legal history at the University of California, Davis, one of the nation's leading authorities on the law of treason. He's the author of the books On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law, and The Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution. So what other statutes are there out there that maybe Bannon and company are exposed to, or even John Eastman? I mean, is sedition... Is there anything in that regard? I mean, what's yeah, the I, I, yeah, I think there, I think there is. I mean, so under U, our U.S. Code, we have a statute called Seditious Conspiracy, and it says, I'll, I can read you the, the text of it here. It says, if two or more persons in any state or territory conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the United States, or to levy war against them, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States, you can be fined up to, um, or imprisoned up to 20 years. Uh, and that seems to fit very clearly um, what a number of the rioters did. Um, that is that they conspired by force to delay the execution of the law of the United States and to possess property of the United States by seizing the capital. And importantly, the crime being punished here isn't the actual doing of it. It's the conspiracy to do it. Um, so, it's a, so it's a conspiracy statute. And so what you look at is what did they plan ahead of time? Who agreed? Who was part of this uh, conspiracy? Uh, and so that's something where if people like Bannon or members of Congress were part of that conspiracy ahead of time, um, they could be potentially charged. Now, they would have to know uh, that there was going to be use of force. If, if all they were planning to do was, again, a big protest and the protest got out of hand, then the statute wouldn't apply. But if they were actually did conspire to agree that this would go forward as a violent attack, um, then this statute seems quite relevant. And I'm actually somewhat surprised the Department of Justice hasn't used this more uh, so far in the January 6th cases, um, as it does seem to be uh, directly relevant. And turning to the revelations in the Rolling Stone, where they had access, or the reporter had access to these two sources who were apparently working with the House Select Committee on investigating January the 6th. And these two sources apparently have been granted anonymity because of this ongoing investigation. But they describe dozens of planning briefings ahead of uh, January the 6th. And they were in close contact with the following Congress people, the QAnon Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, Lauren Bobbitt, Representative Mo Brooks, who spoke at the um, rally preceding the storming of the Capitol, 
along with the Representative Madison Cawthorn, who also spoke at the rally, and then Representative Andy Biggs and Representative Louis Gomert and uh, members of their staff. So isn't there something in the 14th Amendment that could have all of those people immediately stripped of their right to be in Congress? Potentially. So, so Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says um, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress um, who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States, um, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. Um, so this was enacted after the Civil War with the basic intent that former Confederate office holders um, would not um, become office holders during Reconstruction. Um, and it's an interesting question to what extent it applies, because the question is, um, ha- did they engage in insurrection or rebellion against the United States? And then how is that determined? Um, one answer is that the U.S. House could simply determine it in its, by itself and expel the member. That would take a two-thirds vote uh, of the House, and I don't think there will be two-thirds vote to expel these people. Another would be try to claim at the next election that they're ineligible, um, under Section 3. And unfortunately, we just really don't have any clear idea how this works, because um, some people think you have to have a judicial determination of guilt, um, that you have to have some type of uh, hearing. Other people think, well, it's, it's, if it's sort of a clear matter of public record, um, that's enough. And um, you know, state clerks can exclude people from the ballot on that basis. Inevitably, that's going to end up in court. Uh, and I would assume the U.S. Supreme Court, because it's a you know it's a pretty big deal, um, eligibility for for office holding and who determines that um, and under what criteria. So it's a it's a muddy area uh, of law. Carlton Larson, then obviously you're not going to get a, t- a two-thirds vote in this house to boot these these members out of the the house. And of course, the case has not been proven, but apparently they've subpoenaed at least. The House Committee have subpoenaed uh, Paul Ghost as Chief of Staff Thomas Van Flynn. So, what's your sense of of what it's going to take? There were early on a number of Congress people had said they'd witnessed tours of some of the insurrectionists being conducted by the staffs of some of these Congress people that have been named, particularly Paul Gosar and Lauren Bobbitt. So. Where do you think this stands? Well, well, part of me thinks, you know, it's, it's hard to come up with a, a worse list of seven members of Congress than, than these people. And I would have to think that a majority of even Republican members of Congress would agree that these people are, for the most part, a complete embarrassment. Um, and if they could be removed from Congress, removed from tainting the Republican Party, that that would be a good thing. Um, that said, I given the partisan realities, I, I, I don't expect that will happen. So what probably would go forward is Democrats would come forward, or they should say the committee, because it is a bipartisan committee, um, with evidence that they think would justify um, expulsion of a, of a member of Congress, and then it would go um, to a vote, and then people, you know, it would be debated, and people would at least be put on record um, as to whether or not you think this behavior is acceptable or not. Um, and again, that's a, that's assuming a lot about what the precise behavior is, and it probably differs quite a lot between those those different members. Um, I don't think you necessarily want to attribute to the members you know, something that their staff did, and we, so we don't really know for sure what the facts are. But if you assume, 
you know, say, assume the worst possible set of facts that these people were in on it ahead of time, maybe even facilitated uh, the attack, um, that would seem to be as clear a case uh, for expulsion of a member of Congress as you could possibly imagine. Um, and so I think in some ways, um, forcing that vote would, would be a, a pretty politically shrewd move um, on the part of the House. But just in closing, we know that President Trump was leaning on his acting attorney general, Rosen. And in the conversation with Rosen, apparently Trump said, and this is on the record, they have a record of this conversation apparently, uh, or a transcript at the DOJ. Trump said, just go along with me. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And the R's, Republicans in the House, will do the rest. Um, in other words, declare the Biden victory invalid. And then the R's, the Republicans in the House, will do the rest. It sounds like Trump was referring to the very list of Congress people that I just read a little while ago. Yeah, it could be that, or it could be that he meant that the the election could then get thrown um, to the House representatives, um, where the, where the Republican delegations would control um, a majority of the of the state delegations. Um, so it could be that as well. Well, I guess all all we can say is stay tuned, right? Are you confident, uh, Carlton, that? The House is determined here. I mean, if they, as I say, they they haven't dusted off that cell in the basement yet, vis-a-vis Bannon. So they could yeah, get no, tougher. I, 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 yeah, they, they could, and I, and I, and I think they will. Um, you know, and there's there's a lot of techniques um, available. So um, I have I have a, a lot of faith that this process will work itself out in a in a coherent and informative manner. Well, I thank you again for joining us, Carton Larson, who's a professor of constitutional law and legal history at the University of California, Davis, one of the nation's leading authorities on the law of treason. He's the author of the books On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law, and The Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution. We're going to take a brief station break, and we'll be back to follow the money and look into the financial connections between the Trump 2020 campaign and the dark money donor network into which millions were parked to obscure the funding of the January 6th rally. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anna Masolia, who is a researcher, editor, and writer based in Washington, D.C., at the Center for Responsive Politics, where she studies foreign influence, digital and political ads, and is responsible for Open Secrets Dark Money Data, as well as its Foreign Lobby Watch. Trained as a lawyer, she was appointed by the United States Treasury Department to be a member of the Taxpayer Advocacy Panel, a federal advisory committee to the IRS, and she's held additional roles with the United States House of Representatives and the Sunlight Foundation, and she has an article at Open Secrets, Details of the Money Behind January the 6th Protests Continue to Emerge. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anna Masolia. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And I recently spoke with uh, John Dean, who in large part brought about Nixon's resignation during Watergate. And 
he suggested that Bannon is up to his eyeballs in planning the January the 6th, and so is Trump. And of course, what is the most enduring legacy, I guess, of the Watergate hearings is the famous line from Deep Throat, which is, follow the money. And that's exactly what you're doing in terms of January the 6th. And what you've come up with here in this article is pretty damning, is it not? Following the money certainly has unearthed a lot of ties between Trump's campaign and the organizers of the January 6th rally that preceded the attack on the Capitol. We've seen even more ties coming out the more that we're learning about the financial flow that took place, um, not just between Trump's campaign and the individuals who are organizing the rally, but also the more that we're learning about these so-called dark money groups that were helping organize the rally, these so-called 501c4 nonprofits that are don't disclose their donors as we find more information about these groups, either through reporting by journalists at other publications. Uh, ProPublica had an amazing report on this last week that we were able to base some of our reporting on and to build upon some of what they had found, as well as from the January 6th committee at the House, the Select Committee, They have put out so much more information and we're just continuing to learn more about all of these ties. And it's going to be interesting to see what what else comes out. Well, I mean, I want to get into the details in your article, but just to begin, the, the Trump Make America Great Again Committee funneled about $771 million in payments through American-made media consultants, LLC, during the 2020 election cycle. But they have not been able to disclose details of these payments that American-made media consultants made to subcontractors. So there's a lot of money there, is there not, just in that in that kind of dark money pool, starting with $771 million. Absolutely. And so we do know that the Trump campaign and now his ongoing political operation did pay some of the individuals who were involved in the rally, some of these organizers and with the, of the protest. But And that was a total to 4.3 million, which is not insignificant amount. But we don't know how much more the Trump campaign and his joint fundraising committee with the Republican Party might have paid these individuals who were organizing the the rally and the protests through this other vehicle. The American Made Media Consultants LLC, for those who are not familiar, is this in-house media firm, this limited liability company that was created by... Trump campaign officials to act as their in-house media buyer, but effectively just acted as a firm through which the Trump campaign was able to route the vast majority of their payments, which meant that the ultimate beneficiary of those payments, whoever was actually doing the work, was not disclosed to the Federal Election Commission and thus not disclosed to the public. And so we're seeing hundreds of millions of dollars not disclosed of where the purpose of these hundreds of millions of dollars is not disclosed to the public. And while they do have to disclose general information about the purpose, whether it be for media or for text messages, we don't actually see who those specific recipients are. And in this case, that's a really significant thing because it's not just whether they paid certain ad buyers, which could also be significant in certain circumstances, whether there be campaign finance violations. But here, it really raises the stakes of this lack of disclosure because 
we don't know whether Trump's campaign and political operation continued paying these individuals who organized the protests on January 6th and how much. But your article at Open Secrets Details of the Money Behind January 6th protests continue to emerge says that there are new details now of the top fundraisers for former President Donald Trump's campaign that they parked funds with groups that helped organize the January 6th rally into these dark money vehicles and that First of all, Caroline Wren, the top fundraiser for the Trump campaign, who was listed as the VIP advisor on the permit granted by the National Park Service for the January 6th rally, she reportedly boasted of raising $3 million for the protests before the Capitol riot, and then she parked those funds with two dark money groups, that according to uh, reporting from ProPublica. So let's talk about some of these dark money groups the Rule of Law Trust and Turning Point, and then, of course, the Judicial Crisis Network, which is uh, the Federalists. Leonard Leo has created that massive slush fund. So uh, there's an awful lot of details here in this article, which I highly recommend uh, to our listeners. But let's start with these dark money vehicles. How much do you think because we don't know. <laughs> I was going to ask you how much money was funneled through them. And the answer is we don't know, right? Because they're dark money fund vehicles. That's right? right. That's exactly right, is we really don't know just how much was money was funneled through these groups. We don't know how much the the rally and the protest actually ended up costing. Initial estimates were somewhere around half a million dollars. We knew based on some reporting that it was roughly around uh, half a million, but now this new reporting that has come out based on pro- on reports by ProPublica estimates around three million, which is a much larger amount than had been initially reported. And because we now have this huge increase in the in the estimate, we don't really know where that money was funneled through. Uh, there's a few groups that are named here, Women for America First being one of the one of the groups that has really emerged as a power player in this that was not a well-known group and really didn't really exist until a few years ago where uh, Women for America First was the group that had been primarily listed on the permits with the National Park Service. It was created by uh, Amy Kramer, who actually is going to be, who was uh, subpoenaed and is scheduled for a deposition later this week with the House Select Committee. And this group has not really filed any meaningful disclosures with their tax returns yet, but once they do file their their next Form 990, their annual tax return, we'll at least see some of those outgoing grants and some of that spending. But right now, we really don't know uh, the annual budget of this group. We really don't know much about their finances at all. Most of what we base our information, at least uh, that I look at, about 501c4s is on these Form 990 tax records because there is not a lot of other disclosure that is required of 501c4s. And with Women for America First, they're such a new organization that has just emerged in recent years and they were so small their first year, we really don't know how much money they ended up raising in that year leading up to January 6th. We know uh, some of the individuals were involved. We know that there was a report that they had received a $300,000 donation, which would be enough that they would have to publicly disclose their tax record. And so that on its own is really significant because it means we're going to get a lot more information about Women for America First once they do have that filing and make that publicly available. And that $300,000 was a donation from public supermarkets heir Julia Jenkins Francelli. But 
Tell us a little bit about this other character, Dustin Stockman, who was a spokesman for We Build the Wall, which was that scam that Steve Bannon ran where they shook down the Trumpsters for money to build the wall that went into Bannon and the others' pockets. Uh, of course, it's worth noting that Trump pardoned Bannon in the last uh, days he was in office. So they're joined at the hip. Any more clarity on his role? So we do know that Dustin Stockton was a Republican operative who was involved in helping Women for America First organize the rally. He had given some statements to ProPublica with their recent reporting, talking about how parking funds had added this extra layer of secrecy to the operation how the, and shining a little light on how that scheme had worked. He had been a spokesperson for Rebuild the Wall or for Rebuild the Wall when Steve Bannon and others affiliated with the group were charged with fraud. Uh, and that would have been around 2020, shortly before the 2020 election. He was. It's important for me to note that he was not charged in this operate in that operation, but he was their spokesperson at the time. Uh, and we build the wall on it on its own is just a fascinating group, in particular for its ties to Steve Bannon. Uh, they were charged, uh, individuals including Steve Bannon were charged with siphoning money from this online fundraising effort that was intended to uh, build a wall, sort of fulfilling Donald Trump's <laughs> build the wall cry. But uh, they were charged with crowdfunding, raising significant amounts of funds, and then not actually using it for the purpose that they uh, claimed to be. And so basically a fraudulent operation. It's really interesting to see those names pop up, not just on one nonprofit related to Trump, but on others. And so the more nonprofits we've looked at related to various Trump operations, the more we're seeing the same names pop up um, as operatives for multiple multiple different groups. And so you're seeing these networks of groups either sharing operatives, sharing financial information somehow. And this the recent reporting from ProPublica really takes that to another level where we're seeing a, a top Trump campaign fundraiser steering funds to three different nonprofits that we're all effectively coordinating on uh, on organizing the rally. And that's significant because their involvement in the rally gives the appearance that these are independent operating groups coming together for this rally. But the fact that the same organizer is steering funds to all three of these groups really is a very, a very different story behind the scenes. Well, Liz Cheney uh, recently said that the siding of executive privilege suggests that Trump and Bannon are both personally involved in planning the January 6th. Now, I mentioned earlier the Judicial Crisis Network, the dark money group founded by Leonard Leo, the head of the Federalists, who's responsible for putting three, recently putting the three Trump justices on the Supreme Court and stacking the federal bench with ultra-conservative and quite often unqualified jurists. That group, Judicial Crisis Network, they, they gave $4.7 million to the Tea Party Patriots along with the Turning Point Action and $1.9 million to the Rule of Law Defense. I guess the biggest donation went to Turning Point. That was a million dollars from the Republican donor Richard Yulhain, right, his family foundation. So what was the Coke front, uh, their dark money group? How much money went through them, do you know? 
Um, I'm trying to recall the oh, the freedom the Freedom Partners Chamber of Commerce. I don't recall the exact amount there, but one of the things that we really found that was so noteworthy with that was that we saw common donors to all of the different groups, or at least multiple different groups that were all coming together to organize this rally. And so it wasn't necessarily that they had distinct donor bases. We saw just not only this common goal of organizing the rally, but common donor bases, which uh, really reflected their shared fundraising approaches to some extent. Um, and now that it's, and now that we know that they had at least one fundraiser who was steering money to at least two dark money groups and a super PAC involved in the rally, uh, that really takes that to the next level of coordination. Well, the authors of the new book, Peril, Bob Woodward and Robert Coster, have talked a lot about the war room that Bannon had in the Willett Hotel near the White House on January the 5th, the night before. He was meeting there with Rudy Giuliani and somebody from the White House as well, and they were in communication with Trump, who was in the White House trying to pressure Vice President Pence into not certifying the vote. And this ridiculous legal memo was provided by John Eastman, the lawyer there in the White House, who... uh, came up with this bogus justification for for sedition, for a, a coup, which we came very close to. But one of the things that Robert Costa said in a recent interview about the, their book, Peril, he said he was reporting on that night at the Willard Hotel and sort of trying to get in there and find out who was, who was there. And the place was overrun by Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. They were all staying there. And that's not a cheap hotel, right? So do we know the details down to that level of who was paying for the lodgings for these uh, insurgents, particularly the more disciplined military types like the Oath Keepers um, and the Three Percenters who played a big role in breaking into the Congress on January the 6th? We do not know that level of granular detail. We don't know who was paying for these hotel rooms, whether... uh, individual activists were paying for their own rooms or whether they were being bankrolled by different organizations. Perhaps some of that information may come out when these dark money groups file their tax records. Um, We don't know whether perhaps some of the campaign payments or different political organizations' payments to the Willard, should those be reported, may have gone to different individuals who were involved. Um, And it's really hard to say at that point because we don't have that level of detail. Uh, One thing that we do know from different um, social media, at least social media, uh, is that certain dark money groups who were involved in organizing the rally uh, did pay for transportation for a number of individuals. We saw these, but we saw buses bringing people into D.C. We did see this push to get people to D.C. It's just unclear how much of a role they had once people got to D.C., or at least I am not familiar with reporting of how much of a role these groups had with funding their hotel rooms, but we do at least know that they were very much involved in the travel process. Yeah, I'm just wondering (laughs) whether the guy with the horns and the coyote skins, whether he would be welcome in a fancy hotel in Washington, D.C., but um, I guess more details will emerge, right? from the House Select Committee. Anna, thank you so much for the work you're doing, and let's stay in touch as you generate more information 
about following the money. Who paid for the insurrection? Looking forward to it. Well, thanks again. And again, I've been speaking with Anna Masolia, who's a researcher, editor, and writer based in Washington, D.C., at the Center for Responsive Politics, where she studies foreign influence, digital and political ads, and is responsible for Open Secrets Dark Money Data, as well as its foreign lobby watch. And she's trained as a lawyer and was appointed by the United States Treasury Department to be a member of the Taxpayer Advocacy Panel, a federal advisory committee to the IRS, and has held additional roles with the United States House of Representatives and the Sunlight Foundation. And she has an article at Open Secrets. Details of the money behind January 6th protests continue to emerge. We can take a brief station break and back examining the leader of the military coup in Sudan, who is hosting the former prime minister under house arrest in his residence, and the influence of the regimes in the Gulf, who prefer to have military kleptocrats rather than civilians running Sudan. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Steve Howard, who's a professor and associate director for graduate studies at the Ohio University School of Media Arts and Studies, a sociologist by training whose work focuses on social change in Africa and social movements in the Muslim world. He was a visiting professor at the Afad University for Women in Sudan and is the author of Sudan, Scenes from a Youthful Uprising. And his forthcoming book is We Are Mahmoud, On the Path of the Prophet in Unsettled Times. Welcome to Background Briefing, Steve Howard. Thank you very much. So Sudan has been going through unsettled times ever since the dictator Omar Bashir was removed from power. And the civilian government now has been the victim of a coup. The Sudanese military leader behind the coup is somewhat ironically, magnanimously saying, oh, the deposed prime minister, he's detained at my residence for his own safety. Uh, The prime minister being Abdallah Handok. So tell us about this Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the coup leader, I understand he's very popular with the Saudis and the Emiratis. He also had a phone conversation some time back with Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel and Donald Trump. So are there foreign powers behind this coup? Um, I guess I would say that there certainly are foreign powers that are willing to support it. And... um, whether or not they those powers pushed Burhan to take over, um, I, I I really don't know. But uh, of course, he he didn't come out of the the shadows. He was um, kind of he, he was sharing power, and I've got air quotes around sharing power with with Hamdok. The um, he was the military leader and. Hamdok was the civilian prime minister. So they were um, already uh, working together in in that sense. Well, how different is this then from the arrangement that had before? I mean, 
if there are some foreign yeah. powers who might be meddling in this, the US, the UN, the EU, the African Union, and the Secretary General of the United Nations have all condemned this coup. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's just a, a handful of, of regional Arab countries, wealthy with the exception of Egypt, and like they they like having Sudan in their pocket uh, for a variety of reasons. It's a it's a big country. It supplies labor to um, all of those countries, and it has resources that that aggrandize many businessmen in those countries who just take um, Sudan's land and, and farm it and take the profit away. So Sudan is kind of a, a, a victim here, and its its victimization has long been supervised by the military in that country. And those that profit from this victimization are, are what, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates? Yeah, and some Sudanese businessmen too. So the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, those would probably be the uh, the most prominent among those benefiting. And But these generals are in, in Sudan are enriching themselves from Sudan's resources too. They're cooperating with the Gulf states and so forth. But the one reason perhaps for the coup, I'm just conjecturing, is that there's a lot of gold that has been under the control of, of generals, and each general, in a sense, has his own particular corner of the desert in the far north and close to the Nile as well, and they've been taking gold out of there for um, some years now, and they saw this a resource being threatened. You know, they've turned into private gold mines, in effect. Well, it's obvious that they're holding on to <laughs> their ill-gotten gains and that they don't want to share it and that the arrangement with a sort of semi-democracy is now being blown up. Right. Are they also getting money from the pipelines that take this oil from South Sudan through North Sudan to the market? Well, uh, yes, but one imagines that that was primarily going straight to government coffers, although I'm sure, you know, there's always corruption there. But um, the gold was entirely under the control of various military figures. And again, I'm speaking with Steve Howard, who's a professor and Associate Director for Graduate Studies at Ohio University School of Media Arts and Studies, a sociologist by training whose work focuses on social change in Africa and social movements in the Muslim world. He was a visiting professor at the Afad University for Women in Sudan and is the author of Sudan, Scenes from a Youthful Uprising. And his forthcoming book is We Are Mahmoud on the Path of the Prophet in Unsettled Times. So, I mean, we've seen a lot of the doctors, apparently the doctors are going on strike, even at military hospitals. They've been active in earlier uh, uprisings against the military and against the dictator Bashir, and other civilian groups are, are also taking to the streets. But I believe the military are rounding up all the cabinet members from the civilian government and also leaders of demonstrations. So 
What do you think's happening in the streets? Do you have any connections there that are letting you know what's going on? Well, yeah, I've seen a heck of a lot of Facebook footage of, of people uh, making videos with their cameras, of course, of the acts of civil disobedience and not to mention looting and that kind of violence, uh, burning burning down stores and, and so forth. And um, so there is a long history of uh, very active civil disobedience in Sudan. People are, are fed up and one of the the prominent organizations behind uh, the civil disobedience is called uh, We Are Fed Up or Grifna in, in Arabic. And so they're extremely frustrated and they're not going to, to stay home while their democracy is crushed. And, and I use the word democracy advisedly because, you know, that had not really been operationalized yet, too. They have this uh, arrangement in place of power sharing between the uh, civilian government and the military. But now that's uh, been shut down and it was supposed to go in, in a few weeks to be completely run by the civilian government. But maybe that's why the, the coup took place just now, too. So is there any leverage? I mean, the U.S. is cutting off $700 million in aid. I believe the EU is going to follow with similar cuts in aid. That doesn't tend to punish the generals, does it? It punishes the people. So what right, levers yeah, are no. there to put pressure on the generals to reinstate, even if it's sharing with civilian rule, but at least go back to the status quo ante? I think it's it's back to the drawing board on coming up with ways to to pressure these guys, um, they're, they're used to getting their own way. And their leader, Omar al-Bashir, now in prison, uh, was a master at putting off um, these kinds of threats um, from the West and, and would give in very, very gradually in tiny portions to Western demands uh, until finally people just got so fed up that a, a long process of demonstrations led to his ouster by the military, in fact. So I think the the leverage is probably under um, great discussion as we speak, and I, I'm not sure exactly what um, uh, the West can do to pressure, maybe pressure on the, the Gulf states to some extent too, and try to get more cooperation from them to, to pressure um, Berhan and his his cronies, his colleagues in the um, in the military. So what came out of the phone call that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and former U.S. President Trump had uh, back in October 2020, in which Burham took part in this phone call? Then Burham met with Netanyahu in Uganda in February of 2020, along with Mike Pompeo, and they were trying to bring about normalization of relations with Israel and Sudan. Where does that stand? Well, it it succeeded and Sudan became one of the apparently growing number of Arab League states to exchange ambassadors with Israel, along with uh, 
Bahrain and the UAE and uh, who else joined that club? I think those three were what um, Trump was calling the Abraham Accords. So, of course, the U.S. was instrumental in that by um, telling Sudan that the sanctions would be removed finally that had been in place for decades. So that's what took Burhan um, to agree to the um, the idea of recognizing Israel. So what is uh, General Burhan's background vis-a-vis the fact that he was posted in Darfur where widespread atrocities took place? Yeah, I I don't know his details really, but um, if he was a, a military guy under the Bashir regime and was posted as a um, commander in Darfur, then you can be reasonably sure he had a great deal to do with the atrocities for which um, Bashir was accused as well. So, I mean, obviously, you can't take seriously his claims that he's holding the prime minister, the civilian prime minister, at his residence for his own safety, and that everything is great, and Hemdok is doing well, and all this stuff, you know, I mean, that's just obviously, uh, (laughs) nobody takes that seriously, surely. In other words, he's some kind of benevolent guy. Exactly right. No, no, nobody would take that seriously. Although I'm sure that Burhan's residence is um, behind the gates of the of the army headquarters, right there in the middle of Khartoum, and it's not Hamdok who would be dragged off by the the people in the streets. It obviously would be the uh, the military if they could get their hands on them, but. In other words, just staying out of the crossfire at this point um, might not be such a bad idea, too. Right, but the military have got the guns, right? The people don't have the guns. No, they don't. No. And, and that, yeah, that Burhan was talking about uh, trying to stop a civil war was also um, an incredible exaggeration because there aren't really any equal sides here to have a civil war. This is strictly the a military government reasserting its control of every aspect of, of Sudan life. And the people actually are risking their lives, aren't they, confronting the military? Very much so. They are. Um, they did this in 2019 as well to a, uh, an amazing and um, kind of awe-inspiring extent how many people got in the way of fire deliberately and very, very um, tragic in many ways. Uh, But that's also kind of characteristic of of the Sudanese approach to this kind of political change. They haven't had enough experience of ballot box type of change. And so this month, of course, is the anniversary of the uh, 1964, um, which was the first uh, popular uprising that actually took down a government in Sudan, and there were a couple of others after that. Well, the Secretary General of the United Nations said the Sudanese people have shown very clearly their intense desire for reform and democracy. Well, 
you're going further. They're incredibly brave. They're putting their bodies in yeah. right up against these military guys uh, who are run by crooks and kleptocrats and who open fired on civilians and they're probably doing that right now aren't they well exactly and i i told you about the this uh organization uh called grifna or we're fed up and fed up is probably um not a strong enough translation of of the the emotion that goes into uh, the naming of that organization. They're, they're, you know, if I could say this on the radio, they're, they're pissed as hell. And um, they're um, really, really exhausted by um, having so little, being held in so little regard by the, the people who run their lives. Well, Steve Howard, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Steve Howard. He's a professor and associate director for graduate studies at Ohio University School of Media Arts and Studies, a sociologist by training whose work focuses on social change in Africa and social movements in the Muslim world. He was a visiting professor at the Afad University for Women in Sudan and is the author of Sudan, Scenes from a Youthful Uprising. And his forthcoming book is We Are Mahmoud on the Path of the Prophet in Unsettled Times. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.